You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey everybody, CJ here, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar warrior, and of course, renaissance man. In this new dark age in which we find ourselves back with yet another installment of the Dangerous History Podcast. This is episode 74 of the Dangerous History Podcast, and in this episode, we're going to be covering two very different historical paradigms of war, which we'll call, for lack of a better term, the Western way of war, and the Eastern way of war. But before we get started on that topic for today, I have to mention a couple of Patreon shoutouts. I have a couple of new supporters on Patreon. Thank you very much to Lane and to Alan, both of you for stepping up to help support the Dangerous History Podcast with a per-episode pledge on Patreon. Remember to all of you listening, if you sign up as a patron on Patreon for the Dangerous History Podcast for any amount per episode. I'll give you a shout out by name on the next episode I record after you've signed up. And of course, if you sign up as a patron of this show for at least a dollar per episode, and of course, please feel free to do more, two bucks, three bucks, five bucks, hundred bucks an episode. Um, if you think the show is of that much value to you, and of course you can afford it, be happy to accept it. But Become a supporter of the show for at least a dollar per episode, and not only will I give you a shout-out by name on the next episode I make, but in addition to that, you'll be able to access bonus episodes that I'm putting up on Patreon monthly, which are exclusively for the Patreon patrons of the Dangerous History Podcast, not available elsewhere. By the way, the first Patreon bonus episode I've made, which was uploaded a couple of weeks ago, was entitled Dangerous History and Personal Liberation. Look for more to come. One that I'll probably be doing in the fairly near future, either in September or maybe October, is going to be Samurai and Ninjas. So that ought to be fun. So please consider signing up to help the Dangerous History Podcast that way. Now, on to today's topic. We're going to be comparing the Western way of war which is primarily associated with Europe and with European-descended people, which originally arose in Greece in the Archaic Age, and comparing that basic paradigm of war to the so-called Eastern way of war, which is primarily associated with Asia, and which originally arose in China just roughly before the official start of the Warring States period. So pretty close in time period. We're talking, you know, 500s BC, give or take, that these two ways of war pop up on very different parts of the world, the Western way initially in Greece, the Eastern way initially in China. And of course, I want to acknowledge we're talking about basic mindsets or approaches or paradigms to war, to what war is supposed to be and how it's supposed to be done. 
But of course, these are not 100% ironclad. Of course, one can find Eastern armies, you know, armies of Asians, sometimes behaving in a fashion more reminiscent of a Western army, and vice versa. You can oftentimes find Western armies behaving in a more Eastern fashion from time to time. Sometimes they're deliberately doing so because of exposure to the other paradigm's way of doing things. Sometimes they're just hitting upon similar approaches independently. But understand, I'm not at all making the case that these are ironclad, that Asian armies only behave in a certain way and European armies only behave in a certain way. But I think that there is truth to the notion that there are two basic different paradigms that tend to be more dominant in in one tradition versus the other. So first I want to talk about the Western way of war and the origins of the Western way of war. And a great book to get an introduction to this concept is the book, The Western Way of War, by the historian Victor Davis Hanson, who is a top historian of classical Greece and especially the military history of classical Greece. I'm not a fan of much of what he has to say on current events, as he's kind of a neocon when it comes to that, actually a pretty strong neocon. But I, I find him to be great as an analyst of ancient Western history. And Victor Davis Hanson writes, quote, Firepower and heavy defensive armament not merely the ability but also the desire to deliver fatal blows and then steadfastly to endure without retreat any counter-response have always been the trademark of Western armies, end quote. Now, a distinctive approach to war began to develop in Greece as Greece emerged from its so-called Dark Age. For more on that, if you've never listened to the episode, check out Dangerous History Podcast episode 29 where I covered Greece's, ancient Greece's Dark Age and its recovery from that. And as ancient Greece began to come out of its Dark Age, it moved into what's known as the Archaic Age, roughly the time between when the Dark Ages started to dissipate and learning and technology and things like that started to make a comeback. And then the Archaic Age usually is considered to end roughly around the time the Greeks started to get into troubles with the Persian Empire, so roughly around 500 B.C., now, the circumstances going on in Greece at this time in which this new paradigm of war started to arise was, number one, you had the rise of the polis, the independent self-governing city-state, basically the city and the immediate hinterland and agricultural land right around it, as a sovereign political entity. And Greece was covered with many of these. I forget the exact number. I probably mentioned it back in episode 29, I think. But, you know, ultimately, a few hundred, I think identifiable poles, as they're known in the plural. Now, only a relative handful of them are well known to us today, Athens, Sparta, Thebes, Corinth, but these are just some of the larger and more noteworthy ones. There were actually lots more. At the same time that the polis was arising as the distinctive political unit of archaic and classical Greece, there was also the rise of the yeoman farmer as a class. This idea of citizenship also tied to property holding. And in many of the Greek poles, the citizenry was numerically dominated by small farmers, often with five to ten acres, who were free men, independent, they owned their own land, but were not super wealthy. Kind of a, a sturdy middle class, you might think of them. Now, there were actually plenty of slaves in all of these societies, so don't think that like every adult male was a small independent farmer. In fact, in most poles, I think probably a majority or close to it of all the people who lived there were not even citizens, and most of those who were not citizens would have been slaves of some sort. But in 
many of the Greek poles, citizenship was tied in not just with property holding, with being a, an independent farmer or something like that. It was also that went hand in hand with the idea of being a citizen soldier, of being a member of the militia of the polis in which you lived and in which you were a citizen. And these things were considered to really dovetail the idea of your right in the in your polis to participate in its politics as an active member of the citizenry went hand in hand with your duties to help defend the polis in time of threat. So you have the evolution of a militia system of what are known as hoplites, meaning the core of the militia to defend an ancient Greek city-state is going to be heavily armed and armored infantrymen. Now, a lot of how this distinctive method of war, right on down to the weapons, the tactics, to how battle went, a lot of this has to do with just the physical circumstances of Greece. For example, the geography of Greece, much of it is very rugged, you know, rocky, craggy, mountainous, and so on. So therefore, the Greeks couldn't raise huge numbers of horses. So foot soldiers became the norm. You had relatively little in the way of cavalry at all in Greece during this time period. In an archaic and classical Greece, even members of kind of the elite classes of a polis would still most likely be serving in an infantryman capacity. Unlike in so many other societies of the same time period, wherein the elite would prefer to be charioteers or later, once horses got strong enough to do so, uh, to be regular cavalry. Now, the fact that in the case of most of the Greek poles, the military was actually composed entirely of citizen soldiers who had you know, a farm or some other thing that was their career, that was their living. That meant that the Greeks didn't want wars to drag on really long. They wanted to get back to their farms, you know, have the dispute settled. And in most cases, it's a dispute between two different city-states. Have the dispute be settled quickly and decisively, done with, and that way the survivors of the battle can go back to their farms and not be gone a long time. So this basic approach to war developed with the goal of we want to get it over as decisively and quickly as possible. So what this meant was that let's say a dispute arises between two Greek city-states, you know, a boundary dispute or something like that, right? Who's got the right to some certain piece of land? We want it settled as soon as possible. So the solution was the idea of mutually agreed upon decisive battle. Oftentimes in these wars between the various city-states, they were literally agreed upon in, in advance when and where the battle would take place. And no joke, they even would often have referees chosen to declare a winner if for some reason it was not clear who won the battle. Now, like I said, part of the reason why they really wanted decisive battles was to get it over with quickly and to be able to go home. The other reason for it was the nature of Greek farming. A lot of the most important Greek crops, especially olives and grapes, are really difficult to devastate, you know, to, to ruin um, permanently, you know, to burn them or whatever. And so as a result, it's like more trouble than it's worth to try to attack an enemy that way. Now, in many other parts of the world where they were growing crops that were a lot more vulnerable to things like burning and confiscation, 
warfare often took more the form of go after your enemy. They pull in behind some defensive fortification, you know, inside of a city or what have you. And then while they're in there, you go around and and take all their crops and burn what you can't take. But because two of the main crops in Greece were grapes and olives, and these are not nearly as vulnerable to that sort of thing, it meant that that was a very, very ineffective and indecisive way to try and hit your enemy. So again, another reason why this concept of deliberately seeking decisive battle came about. Now, the Greek soldier, or hoplite as he was known, would have been equipped with very heavy body armor. He would have had a bronze corslet basically covering his entire torso that would have weighed about 30 to 40 pounds. He would have had a bronze helmet that covered the head and the back of the neck and most of the face with just a few little eye holes. This helmet would have been quite heavy, about five pounds or more, and it would have heavily impeded the soldier's sight and sound. He would have basically been seeing out two little eye holes and his hearing would have been very, very muffled. Now, aside from his helmet and his corslet, the Greek hoplite would have also had some thin bronze shin guards called greaves that basically went from ankle up to knee, and he would have carried a heavy shield. This would have been a round wooden shield, three feet in diameter, weighing about 16 pounds, and held with the left arm only. The shield was called a hoplon, and is where the name hoplite came from to refer to these types of soldiers. And the standard way of fighting is you would get in a close formation, you would be holding your hoplon, your big wooden shield with your left hand, and you would be wielding your spear most of the time underhand, at least for the the initial clash of battle. You would be wielding your spear underhand with your right hand. And so unit cohesion was very important for this way of fighting because you want the guy next to you to be real close so that his shield is helping to cover you up. Now think of it, you got a pretty a pretty stout helmet and body armor. You got a little bit of, of kind of lower leg protection. You've got a shield, but it's kind of covering part of you and covering part of the guy next to you. You're not entirely covered by a huge shield um, like the, the type of shield that the Romans had. I'm going to point out something. It's the type of thing that people don't usually dwell on. How often in battle, whether it's ancient battle or modern battle... Men are wounded in like the last place they would want to be wounded. And yes, I'm talking the groin. Think about it. The one place that the the Greek hoplite is the most vulnerable is the groin. It's the least protective. He can't wear, you know, a pair of bronze boxer shorts or something like that because that would impede his mobility so bad he couldn't move. And so in the accounts, you find frequent references to groin, you know, kind of crotch and upper thigh wounds as being one of the one of the number one you know worst places to be wounded other than occasionally in the eye or something like that and even to this day it's one of those places where modern soldiers are frequently wounded and it's something for some reason they don't really play up in the recruiting ads i I can't imagine why and like i said the primary weapon of a greek hoplite was a long spear approximately six to nine feet in length believed to have weighed somewhere in the neighborhood of two to four pounds, so relatively lightweight, but very strong, wielded only with the right hand, because remember, your left hand is carrying the 16-pound shield. And the Greeks, culturally, in their view of war at this time, they believed that close-range weapons were the honorable way to fight, and they looked down upon distance weapons. 
So, for example, the Persians, who had a great mystique for the bow, uh, the Greeks would, would kind of see that as being not quite macho and honorable and manly and so on. The shaft of this long spear would be wood, the spear head would be iron, but most of the spears also had a bronze spike on the rear end, so that if you're fighting with your spear and you broke it, as was very common in these clashes uh, that these Greek hoplites had, you could still use the lower half of your spear, the half that's still held in your hand, and reverse it and use that little bronze spike as a bit of a secondary weapon. Now, as kind of a sidearm, they would often have a short bronze sword, but it was not very effective. It was, you know, nothing remotely as as tough and effective as something like the Roman Gladius Hispaniensis. So it was better than trying to jam your thumb in the other guy's eyes. But the lower half of your spear with the spike on it probably was a better plan B, and then your sword would be your plan C. Now, these citizen soldiers owned their own weapons and armor. Sometimes they were passed down many generations. They were seen as a great point of personal pride. And so in most city-states, the hoplites would all have, you know, the same basic kind of design, but as far as the exact decoration or the exact shape of everything, these things would be unique. They would be decorated, they would be treated with great pride by their owners, maintained well. It's a relatively expensive batch of kit that you need to be a Greek hoplite. You need the right armor, the spear, a sword, right? all that stuff. Relatively expensive, and that's another reason why the Greek hoplite units are composed mainly of kind of middle class and up people. Now, they would often use poorer people as sort of auxiliaries or slingers or skirmishers or something like that. But the real heart of a Greek military of this time period are those hoplites. In most poles, male citizens between the ages of 18 and 60 were enrolled in the militia. And Victor Davis Hansen estimates that in 5th century BC in Greece, most Greek city-states would have a battle with one of their neighbors at least once every three years or so. So that means that most adult males who were much over the age of 18 were probably veterans of multiple battles. And the old guys would have seen a ton of them. Now, these Greek militias fought in a dense formation called a phalanx, which was a very um, elongated sideways rectangular formation, sometimes up to a half a mile wide or more, and usually about eight men deep, give or take, depending on how many guys, you know, they could feel for a given battle. They were tightly packed together. You wanted that. It, one of the keys to being successful in a hoplite battle was simply all sticking together. Standard operating procedure would be to put the rookies, the youngest guys who haven't been in battle yet, in the middle of the phalanx formation, you know, the middle relative to front versus back is what I mean. And then the guys they would put at the front of the formation would be the guys who were sort of middle-aged. They were a bit seasoned. They weren't rookies. They could be, you know, trusted and counted on to... to do what they had to do, but they were still in the prime of their physical hardiness, right? Guys maybe in their mid to late 20s to early 30s. Those would be your front lines, then your young rookies in the middle, and then behind them would be your crusty old seasoned veterans. And one of their main jobs was to make sure that the rookies kept together and kept moving forward. Because that's basically the only move that the phalanx has as a formation, is just like you go, you march forward. And then when you get to clash with the opposing phalanx it's basically just a, a combination of shoving and stabbing match now these greek hoplite militias one of the few cases in which the you know examples of a society in which the wealthy and the elites 
were expected to and did fight and die in the front ranks. In fact, Greek generals suffered very high casualties because of this. It was expected that if you were a general, your ass was supposed to be not just with the troops, but like in the most dangerous part of the battlefield. Now, this began the tradition in Western armies of having leadership from the front. And this was at least a theoretical ideal until it was largely abandoned in the 20th century with a few exceptions. But you can see this in the case of Alexander. Uh, many of the Roman generals, you know, would, would put themselves right front and center where the action was. And then sometime along the way, definitely the trend was going by World War I at the, at the very latest. The idea of the higher up in rank you are, the further you are away from any actual danger. Now, basically, when two Greek hoplite phalanxes are facing off, they're just going to smash into each other. And then once at close range, it's close quarters, you know, clawing, stabbing, that kind of nasty stuff. And that goes on sometimes for quite a while until one side breaks, maybe breaks because enough of them are getting killed that there are gaps in the formation, maybe breaks because some of them decide to try and run for it despite the crusty old guys behind them trying to keep them from doing so. But one way or another, once once one side's formation starts to break for any reason, that's usually it. That's when actually the majority of the killing starts, because once you abandon formation, you're much more vulnerable to the other side. So it can turn bloody and nasty pretty quick. Once the formation starts to fall apart and you're in that situation, it's almost impossible to carry out much in the way of an effective fighting retreat. And then the battle's over relatively quickly. And most of the Greek wars that occurred between the various poles during the archaic and sort of early classical period, most of those wars would be over within one or two battles, and that was it. So the hoplite way of war, the Western way of war, as Victor Davis Hanson termed it, is a way of war that at the time and in the circumstances in which it was developed served its purpose well for quite a long time. In the Persian Wars, things started to get a little bit more drawn out, but even there, things were usually over within you know a year or two at most. In, in the Persian invasions of Greece. But then you get to the Peloponnesian Wars a few decades after that, and you start to get decisive battle no longer being as decisive as it used to be, and wars that drag on for years and years and years and years. Now, like I said, a phalanx battle would basically take the form of a clash in open ground until one side broke for some reason. The phalanx really couldn't, and for the most part, didn't maneuver other than just kind of marching and shoving forward. The only maneuver that sometimes did occur, and it was unintentional, was that the phalanx would drift to the right, almost subconsciously, as each man instinctively sought the protection of his neighbor's shield. And again, the biggest criteria for victory in this form of war is not individual skill or prowess or anything like that, not craftiness, not cleverness. It's basically just sticking together in tight formation, no one breaking, no one running. We all hang together and, and move forward. Now, as centuries passed uh, after ancient Greece, the specific weapons and, and specific battlefield tactics faded over time. The Romans, for example, took a lot of the Greek concepts of war, adapted them, added new weapons, added a bit more tactical flexibility, and so on. And, of course, later Europeans who kind of, via the Romans, inherited the same basic approach to war also made their own changes to it based on the circumstances, based on what they might have had available. 
For example, in the medieval era, there was much greater emphasis put on heavy cavalry, but the overall concepts, though, of what war is supposed to be, what battle is, and what it's for, they basically stayed the same. What lived on through the Romans and through later Western people's approach to war was this general Greek mindset on what war and battle were supposed to be about, that battles decided wars, that the whole key to winning wars was to fight effectively in decisive battle. And this lived on even though later peoples in Europe were in vastly different circumstances than the ancient Greeks had been when they developed this approach. And this basic paradigm of war lives on today in most Western militaries. Victor Davis Hanson writes in The Western Way of War, quote, It is taken for granted in our culture, more or less, that men and women, like their Greek predecessors, do not have to be told by their governments that the only way to defeat an enemy is to find and engage him in order to end the entire business as quickly and directly as possible. And so they have entered upon that crowning absurdity of warfare, the pitched battle, end quote. And throughout the Western Way of War's existence, the emphasis has remained primarily on things like heavy offensive weaponry and heavy defensive armor, right? Basically, the, the idea of maximum hardware. The emphasis has stayed on the idea of decisive battle on attrition, but trying to get attrition as quickly as possible, trying to inflict maximum damage on the enemy as quickly as possible. In contrast to the Eastern way of war that we'll look at in a moment, the Western way of war is much more comfortable with trying to achieve victory from the battle itself. By contrast, the Eastern way, as we'll see, is not in favor of this approach. The Eastern way of war says that the battle itself really shouldn't be decisive. It shouldn't be terribly important. Perhaps it's even anticlimactic or superfluous at best to achieving your overall victory. And if you want to be uncharitable, I suppose you could perhaps say that in some ways, the Western way of war is sort of like the dumb jock approach to fighting. There's the enemy. Let's go get him. Urgh. Uh, I clobber. I clobber you good, right? It's like the big, strong, but very unskilled bar fighter who's able to win bar fights just on sort of size and aggression because most of the time he's fighting against opponents who aren't any more skilled than he is and he's just bigger and stronger than them. The Western way of war. In fact, Victor Davis Hanson even entitled one of the key chapters of his book, The Western Way of War, the title of the chapter is Not Strategy, Not Tactics. Okay? And he basically says in there, yeah, there's really not tactics and strategy going on in the hoplite way of fighting. And while certainly there's a lot more tactics, tactics and strategy that are going on in modern Western warfare, I still think there's not the same, not the same degree of subtlety and multidimensional thinking that you find in skillful proponents of the Eastern way. You know, some degree of maneuver has come into the Western way of warfare over the centuries due to first better horse cavalry and, and eventually vehicles and so on. But that basic mindset of decisive battle, the idea of just try to find the enemy and then pour everything you have onto him to wipe him out, that basic mindset still endures. And when this works against an opponent really well, it's usually because it's working against an opponent who, whether consciously or not, is being cooperative by basically fighting the kind of fight that you're trying to put on him. And when that happens, it works very effectively. But this approach often fails miserably against an opponent that won't consent 
to participating in your decisive battle that you're trying to have, um, who, who's not willing to just engage in fighting you toe-to-toe until one or the other of you is beaten. An opponent who refuses to consent to that is going to be very hard to subdue with the standard Western decisive battle fetish of war. Now, those who are completely lost inside of the Western way of war paradigm are people who, like anyone totally engulfed in any paradigm, they can't even see that it's just one potential paradigm that they're in. They think that that's what all the war is. And I would say anyone that's totally lost within a paradigm is going to be someone that doesn't even realize they're in a particular paradigm. They're just going to think that's what it is, whatever the you know subject area is. So someone who's just totally engulfed in the Western way of war doesn't even realize there are other approaches to war out there. And those are the sorts of people who, if they encounter someone who's fighting more the Eastern way, will often accuse those who fight that way of being cowardly or afraid to stand and fight honorably and things like that, right? Whereas an Eastern practitioner would be more likely to say, no, this is someone who is fighting cleverly. And when they decide that a battle no longer has any advantage to them to keep, um, you know, fighting, they, they'll leave, right? They'll, they see no shame in deliberately breaking off a fight and pulling out retreating to fight another day. But to the Western way of war crowd, this is dishonorable, right? So for a case of this mismatch of paradigms, a great one, and one that I will get into in the future in my uh, guerrilla and unconventional warfare series that's upcoming, a great example of seeing these two ways of war butting heads is the Vietnam War wherein the American troops and their allies are using search-and-destroy tactics, basically amounts to, we're going to patrol through areas where, they, where we think there are insurgents, and basically march around waiting for them to ambush us. And then once they ambush us, we're going to try and pin them down and call in fire support and reinforcements and whatever, and wipe them out. So it's basically trying to get these wily insurgents to stand and fight in a decisive battle. And more often than not, the insurgents refused to cooperate. They would, if they wanted to, and they thought they had the advantage, they would execute an ambush. But then when the Americans started to, you know, fight back, try to pin them down, call in, call in air support, more often than not, the insurgents would just leave. They would inflict their damage, be satisfied, and go. And the American tendency is to, to talk about this as, oh, they're being cowardly and not standing and fighting. And no, they, they don't have anywhere near the firepower and technology that that uh, the American side had. So from their perspective, they're just fighting smart and efficient given the circumstances. You know, Goliath could have accused David of being a coward for using a sling, but fact of the matter is David won the fight, didn't he? On the relatively few occasions where the Vietnamese insurgents in the NVA tried to engage in large conventional pitched battles, they typically didn't do well. That's why they didn't do it very often. Now, throughout history, very few Western armies have incorporated some degree of Eastern-style warfare into their approach in a significant way. The German army of World War I and especially World War II is a partial example. They did incorporate some of the ideas of maneuver warfare, perhaps not all of the Eastern paradigm of war, but they at least incorporated some of it into their approach to war. But for the most part, you find a lot of Western, modern Western armies paying lip service to Sun Tzu and to the notion of maneuver warfare. But in practice, they just seem to keep trying the same old things, at least as far as I can see. Now I want to switch gears and talk about the other main paradigm of war that's out there. And that is the so-called Eastern way of war, again, for lack of a better term. And a lot of this ultimately can be traced back to 
one historical figure and there's disputes about, you know, when exactly he lived and was he a real guy? And I'm, I'm not even remotely enough of an expert to have an educated guess on this. So I'm just going to treat him as if he is a real guy, as most sources seem to think. The Chinese general Sun Tzu, whose life is traditionally dated to be from 544 B.C. to 496 B.C. Again, there's some dispute there. I'm not I'm not taking a side in that. Sun Tzu was a Chinese general and, and a sage. That's why he gets the title of Tzu, who lived in China during the period when China was divided into multiple kingdoms. And he went to work for the kingdom of Wu, which was one of the smaller Chinese states at the time, and led it to victory against very great odds against several larger kingdoms, such as its neighbor Chu, which was its main rival. And I think there were one or two other states that were allied with Chu for a while. Now, Sun Tzu started off with a force of only about 30,000 soldiers, and he was facing the Chu army that numbered about 10 times as many. And so what Sun Tzu did was not to stupidly march out and and fight the uh, the Chu army in open warfare and open ground and get wiped out. Instead, what Sun Tzu did was he started off with indirect attacks, very reminiscent of modern guerrilla warfare, finding small exposed enemy units and hitting them, going after the enemy's supply lines and communications and so on. And whenever the Chu army would try to counterattack in force, Sun Tzu's army would just disappear. Again, sounds very much like modern guerrilla warfare. And as time went on, Sun Tzu's attacks frustrated the hell out of the big huge Chu army, and the Chu army had to disperse throughout a huge frontier to try and protect like everywhere all at once. And this made them weaker. And these little, these little battles and skirmishes also were giving Sun Tzu invaluable intelligence and experience on how his enemy fought and how they operated. Based on the things he learned, he was able to get better and better at defeating them. Now, over time, Chu lost allies and lost popular support from within. And Wu, the kingdom that Sun Tzu was working for, began to gain allies and get more and more popular support from within. And eventually Sun Tzu was able to win it all for his kingdom in this war. After securing this great victory, Sun Tzu supposedly retired and kind of disappeared. There are some who say it was because the behavior of the king of Wu that he had just won this war for uh, really kind of alienated him. But um, this is, again, somewhat semi-mythological, maybe legendary, but this is supposedly when Sun Tzu wrote The Art of War. Though, again, some people today question when exactly it was written and who really wrote it. Your guess is as good as mine. But regardless of whether the story of Sun Tzu as a real guy and the things he did is true or not, regardless of of whether this real guy did write the art of war, whether some other sages wrote it and attributed it to him or whatever, the fact of the matter is that this book, The Art of War, has had a huge impact on military minds and anyone who deals with any sort of tactics or strategy or trying to outwit an opponent in any venue. It's had a huge impact on anyone like that ever since, first in Asia and then gradually beyond as it eventually spread the outside world to the Western world and so on. The timing is somewhat ironically looking at the origins of the Eastern and Western ways of war in that Sun Tzu may have written this treatise just as the Greeks were basically perfecting their very different approach to war, you know, the Western way of war. Now, overall, Sun Tzu's Art of War, this is one of those books that lots of people talk about and very few of them have actually read through the whole thing. Sun Tzu's Art of War takes a very cerebral view of war, 
Many consider it to be even a bit Taoist in its approach. It's very aware of things like the power of opposites or of things that seem to be contradictory or paradoxical or things like that. In the case of the Eastern way of war, you know, we have this great sage and this great book that we can look at and really get the theory behind it. Whereas the Western way of war, there's really no equivalent to that. There's no equivalent to Sun Tzu and the art of war in the Western way. I mean, there's, there's later people, Clausewitz and so on, who have their analyses of war. Mach- Machiavelli wrote a book on war, but th- there's nothing like Sun Tzu to be found at the beginning of the Western way of war. So I've got a lot more cool quotes and things to share from Sun Tzu and not really, you know, much in the way of that for the Western way. But first I'll share with you one of my favorites. This comes from chapter three of the Art of War. Sun Tzu writes, quote, To fight and conquer in all your battles is not supreme excellence. Supreme excellence consists in breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. In the practical art of war, the best thing of all is to take the enemy's country whole and intact. To shatter and destroy it is not so good. So, too, it is better to capture an enemy army entire than to destroy it. To capture a regiment, a detachment, or a company entire than to destroy them. Thus, the highest form of generalship is to balk the enemy's plans. The next best is to prevent the junction of the enemy's forces. The next in order is to attack the enemy's army in the field. And the worst policy of all is to besiege walled cities, because the preparation of mantlets, movable shelters, and various implements of war will take up three whole months, and the piling up of mounds over against the walls will take three months more. The general, unable to control his irritation, will launch his men to assault like swarming ants, with the result that one-third of his men are slain, while the town still remains untaken. Such are the disastrous effects of a siege. The skillful leader subdues the enemy's troops without any fighting. He captures their cities without laying siege to them. He overthrows their kingdom without lengthy operations in the field. With his forces intact, he disputes the mastery of the empire, and thus, without losing a man, his triumph is complete. This is the method of attacking by stratagem, of using the sheathed sword. End quote. Notice how different this is to the Western way of war. Some other wisdom from Sun Tzu, quote, Know your enemy and know yourself, and in one hundred battles you will never be in peril. End quote. So if you truly understand yourself as an individual in your side in the war, including what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses, and you understand the same about your enemy, including your enemy's army as a whole and also the overall commander of the enemy's forces, understand their psychology, understand their strengths and their weaknesses, and really understand this on a deep level, and you'll be able to figure out how to defeat them very effectively and efficiently. And just looking at a lot of current and recent American wars, I don't get the sense that, A, the Americans know themselves truly, and I don't get a sense that they really know and understand their enemy either. And so perhaps this alone might be a huge explanation as to why a lot of Team America's recent wars haven't exactly gone swimmingly. Now, Sun Tzu explicitly rejects the idea of battle being the decisive thing in war. And again, Like I kind of mentioned before, to him, battle is almost sort of like just sort of the icing on the cake, if it even occurs at all. Sun Tzu writes, quote, the winning army realizes the conditions for victory first, then fights. The losing army fights first, then seeks victory, 
end quote. So the idea is, basically, you only fight when you are certain you're going to win because of the situation and what else you've already done beforehand. There's a great emphasis in the art of war on initiative, on you being the initiator, you deciding where the battle takes place, and basically trying to get your enemy to just sort of play into your plans, to manipulate them without them even realizing that they're being manipulated. So, for example, Sun Tzu writes, quote, Those skilled in war bring the enemy to the field of battle. They are not brought by him, end quote. So if you want to have a battle, you get your enemy somehow or other, you, f- you sucker him or you trick him or whatever into fighting in a place that you've already predetermined is where you want to fight. There's a lot in Sun Tzu on terrain and the importance of really understanding terrain. Things like, quote, when the enemy occupies high ground, do not confront him. If he attacks downhill, do not oppose him, end quote. Something that perhaps had Robert E. Lee understood that tenant had he read Sun Tzu, perhaps he would have looked at the situation on the final day of Gettysburg and decided not to order Pickett's charge. Sun Tzu's art of war also is very interested in the idea of when not to fight. Sun Tzu writes, quote, There are some armies that should not be fought, some ground that should not be contested, end quote. There's a lot of thought given to things such as waiting for your enemy to make a mistake and then capitalizing on it, making sure you're in a position of strength that you can capitalize on it, though. Sun Tzu writes, quote, The good fighters of old first put themselves beyond the possibility of defeat, then waited for an opportunity of defeating the enemy, end quote. Large amount of warfare in Sun Tzu's mind is based on successful use of deception. Sun Tzu writes, quote, All warfare is based on deception. Hence, when able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must seem inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far. When far away, we, we must make him believe we are near. Hold out baits to entice the enemy. Feign disorder, crush him. Attack him where he is unprepared. Appear where you are not expected. End quote. Sun Tzu also understood psychology very well, and he knew that sometimes in order to achieve certain objectives, you might have to have your men do virtually the impossible. You know, battle might be necessary and against long odds in certain situations in order to achieve certain objectives that will help your overall grand strategy. And one thing that Sun Tzu famously talked about, and lots of people have quoted this and used it metaphorically in different ways, is an idea of what he calls death ground. Death ground is the idea of sometimes it's actually the smart thing to stick your army in a spot where there's no retreat. There's no way out where it's basically you go forward, you fight, you conquer, or you die. Because when you stick your army on death ground, they will fight harder than they otherwise ever would. And there are lots of examples of this throughout history. Sun Tzu says, quote, Put the army in the face of death where there is no escape, and they will not flee or be afraid. There is nothing they cannot achieve, end quote. Now, this, he was not advocating rashness there. He repeatedly says in Art of War things to the effect that the last thing you want in a general is someone who's going to be rash. So when he says sometimes you put the army in death ground in order that they have no choice but to fight, he's not saying you do this lightly or without a lot of thought. Along with this idea of deception, 
Sun Tzu is very big on spies. He devotes a whole chapter in The Art of War to spies, and he advocates some very sophisticated things, including creating of double agents. In other words, when the enemy spies, when you get them, you recruit them, bribe them, whatever, to work for you while they pretend to be still working for your enemy. Double agents. Now, Sun Tzu still wanted war to be over as quickly as possible, given the circumstances and whatever the objectives were. He just thought that the notion, not not that he was directly exposed to it, but he kind of looked at the idea of decisive battle as being a really inefficient and kind of dumb way to go about winning a war. But he still thought that you should try to do things always as efficiently as possible, meaning both lives and resources, but also time. So he understood that if a war drags on too long, it becomes really, really bad for everybody, including yourself. And Sun Tzu wrote, quote, In all history... There is no instance of a country having benefited from prolonged warfare, end quote. So in contrast to the Western way of war, the Eastern way of war places the emphasis on things like maneuver, surprise, deception. It looks at war much more holistically than the Western way of war does. It looks more at things like psychology and understands that the psychology of soldiers and of leaders is often more important to winning or losing a war than whatever actually occurs on the battlefield. Sun Tzu's idea of war is much more concerned with just winning, with achieving your goals, and that that's more important than trying to have some glory on a battlefield somewhere. Sun Tzu looks at all kinds of factors like timing and momentum and things like this that often get very overlooked in many works on strategy and war. Now, this approach to war of Sun Tzu's spread to other Asian peoples, including the Japanese and the Mongols. And then, of course, over time, it became the basis for much of the kind of intellectual groundwork of modern guerrilla warfare theory and practice. So, for example, you can read Mao Zedong's book on guerrilla warfare, and you could see very clearly how much he was influenced by Sun Tzu. And for an American take on a lot of this, how the Eastern way of war has evolved in the modern world, you can check out a book entitled Phantom Soldier, The Enemy's Answer to U.S. Firepower by H. John Poole. So basically, when you see an insurgency or or, or guerrilla fighters or something like that, that's usually going to be much more your Eastern way of war, whether the people doing it even realize it or not, whether they've actually read Sun Tzu or even Mao Zedong or not, that's basically what they're doing. Whereas by contrast, the big, you know, conventional forces are typically much more Western way of war. And again, this distinction between these two ways is not 100% clear cut, of course. No army is entirely one way or the other. One can find Asian armies operating in the methods and mindset of the West, and one can find Western armies behaving in a clever Sun Tzu fashion. Somebody, for example, like the uh, Roman general Fabius, who used indirect warfare as a way to weaken and wear down and ultimately beat the Carthaginians while avoiding decisive battle because that would have played into Carthage's strengths at the time. But still, the overall distinction between these two paradigms, I think, largely holds. These are different paradigms of what war is and how it should be fought. Now, the reason I wanted to go over this is it lays some of kind of like the groundwork or maybe the background for what I'm going to be getting into in the relatively near future, some history of, in the modern world, meaning kind of like last 200 years, of 
guerrilla warfare, insurgent warfare, unconventional warfare, that sort of thing. So looking ahead to the miniseries I'm going to be doing on that, I wanted to go over this sort of way back history, lay that groundwork so that then this will make more sense when we start getting into some of those more recent topics. Because like I said, modern guerrilla warfare, unconventional warfare, fourth generation warfare, all very much derived from Sun Tzu's approach. Whether the people practicing it always know that or not doesn't matter. It's deliberately crafted as a way to defeat Western armies, despite the Western armies having always overwhelming dominance in conventional battle, in firepower and armor and so on. But the reality, as the last couple hundred years of insurgent warfare shows, the reality is much closer to what Sun Tzu described than the way of war developed in the West. The reality is that winning battles does not automatically equate to winning wars, unless both sides have either explicitly or tacitly agreed to that, unless there's some sort of mutual agreement that, all right, here's the battle, let's do it, let's have, you know, basically a larger, more explosive and deadly version of an old school gang rumble, and uh, whichever one of us wins is who wins the war. Unless both sides are kind of willing to do that, it doesn't work very well. And by contrast, as long as at least one side to a war refuses to let battle itself be the decisive factor, then the Western way of war is unlikely to work very well. The Eastern way, being much more holistic, looks at battlefield tactics as just one factor. And it also takes into account things that might actually be a lot more important in modern wars, such as psychology, politics, culture, the media, etc. This much more holistic way that's just sort of a modernization of Sun Tzu's wisdom. The Eastern way of war, in my opinion, is much better at seeing the big picture, at keeping the context and the political goals in mind, it's more concerned with achieving those goals than it is with achieving victory in individual battles or achieving someone's idea of what glory is supposed to be. Even Victor Davis Hanson acknowledges the limitations of the Western way of war. Quote, This Western mode of attack has been so successful that we have essentially eliminated the very chance that it will take place again in our lifetime. We have put ourselves out of business, so to speak. For any potential adversary has now discovered the futility of an open, deliberate struggle on a Western-style battlefield against the firepower and discipline of Western infantry. Yet ominously, the legacy of the Greeks' battle style lingers on, a narcotic that we cannot put away." And Hansen even links this, you know, the Greek approach to war living on beyond its proper context as being a big part of the blame for what happened at places like Verdun and the Somme in World War I, that people are still approaching war in this way, in, in a way that with modern weaponry just becomes a meat grinder of suicide for people. So I think that's one of the problems with the Western way of war, is that when two Western modern Western militaries with all the modern weaponry and firepower that are roughly equally matched go toe-to-toe and just go at each other in conventional battle, it has the potential to turn into a extremely bloody stalemate. World War I is probably the ultimate example of this taking place. But there's also another problem with the Western way of war, and that is it simply has not been effective at countering high-quality, intelligent Eastern way of war practitioners or opponents. To me, the Western way of war is, like many martial arts, a style that tends to work best against opponents who are fighting in a way 
that is of the same paradigm or very close to it, people who are basically respecting the same conventions and taboos and rules. And this is true of a lot of martial arts, especially the more formal or traditional they are, the more I think they fall into this category. A really, really good karate practitioner can easily defeat a karate practitioner who's not as skilled as he is. But he might be in deep trouble if he goes up against a good grappler, or even just against a really seasoned, freeform street fighter. He'll be in big trouble. He's, he's used to fighting opponents who only fight back in the same fashion you know, that he's used to. And you see this very often if someone who's a great boxer, but who has no experience in any other form of fighting, goes up against someone who's a much more well-rounded fighter, who's really good at grappling and so on, the boxer's going to be in deep trouble. Because he's only good at and he's only used to facing opponents who are also fighting back using boxing techniques and respecting the conventions of boxing, like don't tackle someone to the ground and choke them. And when you see a Western army go up against a really effective Eastern style opponent, it's almost to me like watching one of those early UFC fights where you have some huge, scary looking boxer with a perfect record of wins by knockout. And the guy just looks terrifying. And he goes into the ring against this skinny guy who only looks to be in so-so shape from Brazil. And you think, oh my God, the Brazilian guy's going to get killed. And then within about a minute or two, the Brazilian guy tackles the giant scary boxer to the ground. Giant scary boxer has no idea what he's doing at that point. And next thing you know, Skinny Brazilian guy is choking the giant scary boxer out without barely even breaking a sweat. You know, you saw that again and again in the early UFCs when people really weren't cross-training in different styles of fighting and weren't, you know, trying to be equally good at striking and grappling, and most of the fighters were just one style or the other. In general, fighters in that context who were only used to going against opponents using their same style did very badly. And that's kind of what it looks like to me metaphorically, when you watch a very skilled Eastern force going up against a Western force. It's almost like they're speaking different languages. They just, the Western force doesn't even know how to respond effectively half the time. Half the time, the stuff they do that, that they're trying to win the war with are things that are actually making things worse for them, things that are backfiring. So to me, the Eastern way of war is much more like one of those relatively rare martial arts approaches that is very adaptable to many situations and that really puts some thought into strategy, including the strategy of how to try to avoid fights when possible in the first place and still, you know, achieve your goals. What Bruce Lee referred to as the art of fighting without fighting in Enter the Dragon. And I think I linked to this in my episode way back on the Scholar Warrior. I am going to link to that episode because Taoism does tie in a little bit to, to Sun Tzu. I link to in that episode show notes and I'll link to it in this one as well. The clip in case you've never seen it of Bruce Lee from enter the dragon where he displays the art of fighting without fighting. Very Zen, very Taoist and also very Sun Tzu. So anyway, I hope you found this discussion interesting and informative. As always, I hope I've been not wasting your time in any way. And I just wanted to talk about these ideas and, like I said, lay some of the groundwork prior to delving into the history of modern guerrilla and unconventional warfare more deeply. By the way, I'm very happy to announce that as part of that upcoming miniseries, Bill Bupert of ZeroGov.com is going to be joining me for covering some material on the history of guerrilla warfare, unconventional warfare, and so on. Bill Bupert, if you don't know, 
that's one of his areas of expertise. So I'm very happy to have him on to pick the brain of a genuine expert on the topic. So look for that to be coming up, I don't know, sometime within the next month or so. We haven't nailed down an exact date yet. I also want to thank Bill for setting me up a sub forum on his ZeroGov forum just for my show. And so I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. You can go check it out. Uh, Unless you register for the forum, you're not able to access my sub forum, but you can register for the forum. It's free. You don't have to give away any personal information you don't want to to join or anything like that. It takes a couple seconds. And then once you're a member of the ZeroGov forum, you can access my sub forum in addition to all the other cool, great, interesting stuff that can be found there. So thanks to Bill for that. Remember to check out my website, profcj.org. There you can find show notes with all kinds of links and random stuff for every episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. You can also subscribe at profcj.org to the website itself. Put in your email address. There's a thing over in the right sidebar for email subscribe. Put in your email address there. And what'll happen is you'll just get an email every time there's a new post at the website. You won't get any any junk or spam or whatever just an email every time I've posted something new, which usually means a new Dangerous History podcast episode. Sometimes it's an announcement or something like that that I've posted too. Remember, you can leave questions or comments specific to this episode in the show notes comment section for this episode. And you can also get in touch with me via email for any questions or comments related to anything. P-R-O-F-C-J at P-R-O-F-C-J dot O-R-G. You can also connect with the show on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe to the show in venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. Lots of great ways to help support this show and help me continue building the Dangerous History Podcast. Some of them are even free. One of them is just spread the word. That's great. You can also do things like leave ratings or reviews in venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, I can always use and extremely very much appreciate any type of financial support. You can go to profcj.org slash donate. And there you can find lots of ways to help the show out financially to support the site via Patreon. And I'll put links to this in the show notes. And there's also a link to it on the donate page. Go to patreon.com slash profcj. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. And if you sign up to help support the show via Patreon, and like I said at the very beginning of the episode, pledge at least a buck per episode, and not only will I give you a thank you shout out by name on the next episode I make, you'll also have access to bonus episodes that are available there and nowhere else. I also appreciate donations other ways. If you want to send in a one-time donation or set up for a monthly donation via PayPal, you can. You can find where to do that at profcj.org donate. And also there I have a Bitcoin address as well. And you can donate that way if, if you're so inclined. And of course, as always, the last way that you can help support the show financially is to buy anything from Amazon by going first through any of the Amazon affiliate links that can be found anywhere on my website. And if you do that, I get a small commission from Amazon.com at no additional cost to you. So thank you very much for listening. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. 
Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.